name is Dan. I'm the English congregation pastor here at OCBC Ottawa Chinese Bible Church, and we're glad you're here. If you have, if you have little kids, they are welcome to, we do have a, a children's program downstairs for uh, grade school-aged kids. Otherwise, we, we also love to have the kids in, uh, in the service with us as well. We are um, going through a series where we're looking at the lives of the patriarchs in Genesis. Every week, I have no idea what's coming to a degree, and uh, it's great to get into these stories here. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, to see what God has for us in his word. So we're going through Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 17 today. And if you have a Bible, or there's uh, Bibles in the uh, kind of the shelf in front of you on the, on the chairs, uh, you can turn. We're, we're in Genesis chapter 17, which is probably around page 11 or 12, I'm guessing, in those blue ones. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. But let me read the chapter, and then we're going to kind of look at look at it, and then try to see what it might be speaking to us today. Genesis 17 says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my, shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin should not be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. I'll bless her, and moreover I'll give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come after her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I'll make him into a great nation." But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and those born in his house and bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house 
and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abram and Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Lord, I, I pray, God, that you help us as we look into this somewhat strange passage to us, and I uh, pray, God, that you will, um, yeah, I pray that you'll speak to every single one of us today through these words. In your name we pray. Amen. It's, it's kind of a strange passage. Yes, I get that. Welcome to church. We uh, talk about interesting things here. Um, have any of you guys ever, like twice in this passage it says Abram falls on his face. Right? That's a, it's an interesting thing right there. That uh, I don't know if any of you guys, have you, any of you guys ever laughed so hard you passed out? Or just fell over? I have once. I was sick. We were in Romania on a missions team. We were joking around. Somebody made a joke. I laughed so hard. I literally couldn't catch my breath and woke up, passed out. Okay? So it's not, not often that you'll fall over laughing. But maybe you could fall over laughing. Anybody ever faint before? Do we have any fainters in here? Oh, we got one up there. Fainter. That'd be interesting to ask. I'm going to ask you later what, what happened that you fainted. Anyone else a fainter ever? Oh, wow. Okay, so now we know who not to have stand up at our weddings. <laughs> right? That's always the most embarrassing thing where someone will just keel over, right? Uh, but sometimes even uh, in, in here, you know, the idea of falling over in the face of terror or of just, of just falling down because you've, you've just been impressed with something so um, immense, enormous, gigantic, terrifying that you fall over. And uh, Abraham falls over twice in this passage. Uh, I'm going to do this sermon a little bit differently than I normally do. We're kind of just going to look into the passage first and then try to make some application at the end. Sometimes I try to come up for air during it. But for this one, we're just kind of going to get into it. And we're just going to look at first, we're just going to look at these. There's five things in this passage that take Abram's breath away. There's five shocking things in this passage, if we think about it. And I want to look at these shocking things and kind of talk about what, what they may mean for us today. Um, but shock number one is after 13 years, God shows up and reveals himself to Abram. This is actually what makes Abram fall over initially, right? Uh, Abraham, it says if you go back to um, the end of chapter 16, we put these chapter breaks in the Bible, right? These chapter divisions were not initially part of God's word. Some saint in about the 10th century, I think, 9th, 10th century, added these chapter divisions. It's very helpful when I tell you to turn to a specific place. You can, but they weren't part of the original text. And sometimes uh, they're not helpful. This would be one of those places. Chapter 16, verse 16 finishes with saying, Abram was 86 year old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then the very next, if there's no chapter break, goes right in. And Abram was 99 years old. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he has this encounter. Thirteen years it's been since that episode we looked at last week where um, Sarai, Abram's wife, was frustrated that she had not given to Abram a child, yet she had not had any children of her own, and she suggested to Abram that they, they exploit their maidservant, Hagar, and, uh, and through that episode, uh, God did provide a son for Abram through, through Hagar. 
At the end of last week, we talked about how God had sent Hagar back uh, prophetically, in a, in, a, in a sense, that God in the wilderness met with Hagar, said, God hears and God sees you in your oppression. That's what we talked about. But then how she went back with a message for the oppressor, the oppressor, God sees and hears you, and how Abraham hears that, and he names his son Ishmael, which means God hears. So Abraham's gotten the message, but he's welcomed Hagar and Ishmael back into his family, and somehow now for 13 years, and we're not given any details about these 13 years, we could probably use some imagination of what these 13 years might be like with Hagar and Sarai and and raising Ishmael, his son. But it is interesting that, that Abram's had 13 years of fathering Ishmael. He's had 13 years of... One thing that hit me in this, as I was preparing this week is God didn't tell Abram last week he was mistaken. God didn't tell Abram last week that Ishmael is not going to be that son. And I think there's evidence as we get through this passage today that for 13 years, Abram has been considering that God has heard his prayer for a son, and God has heard his prayer in this son of his, Ishmael. And what is happening 13 years? What happens uh, 13 years? Well, in Jewish custom, which, which may have happened later, but it, it, 13 is a significant age. In many Middle Eastern cultures, 13 is a significant age. 13 is the age where a boy becomes a man, right? Where the boy begins to be a man and take on the responsibilities of adulthood, particularly if you're the oldest son of the family. This might be, you know, your, your time where you will come into, start begin to come into your manhood, begin to come into your inheritance, and just as Ishmael is reached that precipice, it's very significant, just then, God appears to Abraham. And the things he's going to say to Abraham, I read it already, but the things he's going to say to Abraham might, would have been shocking to Abraham as he's possibly preparing to celebrate this 13th year with Ishmael. The Lord appears to him, and, and he appears to him, not in a vision. Abraham's seen the Lord in a vision before. Not through a messenger of the Lord, which happens in Genesis. It happens in the chapter before and the chapter at. But here, the, the phrase is actually that, that Abraham is, is being given a face-to-face in some certain way. Probably not like Moses, but some sort of direct personal experience with God here. And God introduces him to Abram and says, I am the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. We're going to look at that a little bit later, but, but most scholars think God is saying, I'm the all-sufficient one. Walk before me and be blameless. And Abram does nothing more than just falls at his feet in front of this holy God. So, so this would be the first shock. God just appears to Abraham after 13 years of silence. The second shock... As after Abram falls on his face, is that Abram will be the father of many nations. Uh, it says, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said faith and said, Faith, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, 
For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So the second thing that would have shocked Abram is he's 99 years old, and suddenly God shows up, appears to him, and the first thing God says to him is, by the way, your name now is going to be changed. Right? Tony. Tony. I'm seeing you because I think you're one of the older men in our congregation. You've been Tony for how long? Your whole life, haven't you? I don't know. Maybe you changed it at one point. 83 years. You've been Tony. What if you came to church today and, and we said suddenly to you your name? Oh, you know, Tony, it's been a good name. It's had a good 83-year-long run. Uh, but from now on, we're calling you Fred. Right? You're like, okay, well, that was an interesting encounter at church this morning. Now everybody's calling me Fred. And that's what God does to Abram. Now, on the 13th birthday of his son, maybe you'd expect the son to have a rite of passage where the son might be given a new name, but instead of the son being given a new name, Abram's given a new name here. And the significance of this new name is that Abram is going to be now this father of a multitude of nations. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, When God first appeared to Abram or spoke to Abram, he said, Abram, leave the land you're in, leave your country, your kin, your home, and go into the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, right? I will make of you a great nation. Later in chapter uh, 15, God takes Abram and shows him all the stars in the sky and says, uh, so shall your descendants be. So Abram has considered that he will be a great nation and a, and a plentiful, bountiful, prosperous nation. But something has happened between Genesis 15, where God first ratified the covenant with Abram, and now, which I believe is the birth of Isaac, or sorry, the bush of, birth of Ishmael. And God appears after the birth, as, as Ishmael's about to become a man, and God appears to Abram and says, okay, we, we've, we've got some new accounting New accounting for you, Abram. You are now, I'm going to change your name because it is not, it's not clear that you're only going to be the father of one nation. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Which would have been shocking for Abram to hear. His wife, after all, had been barren their entire adult life. Only through going through the, the, his servant has he been given a son. And now it's been 13, 13 years of silence. He may have expected that Ishmael would be the son. But now he's going to be a multitude of nations. Now there's a literal fulfillment in this. There were literal other nations that came from Abraham. The Ishmaelites became uh, peoples. In fact, there are today 427 million people in Arab nations that consider themselves as being literal descendants of Ishmael. The children of Israel, as they're uh, they're fleeing from Egypt, they would have run into the Edomites. They also were a nation that came from Abram, from some of his other sons. So there's, right away, Abram would have been shocked at even thinking about that there's a literal fulfillment of this promise that he'd be the father of many nations. But in the New Testament, the, the promise is expanded even more, and we get into the heart of what this name change means. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, That Abraham is not only the father of Ishmael and those descendants and Isaac and his descendants. In the New Testament, Paul actually says that Abraham is the father to all who share the faith of Abraham. 
So it says, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all, it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God and who he believed and who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, I don't know if Abraham understood that, but he hoped against hope that he would be the father of many nations, but he may not have understood that he actually was going to be the father of faith to not only Ishmaelites, not only uh, Edomites, not only Israelites, but to all who would follow him by faith, including Irish people like me. Right? Métis people. Chinese people. Koreans. I don't know who else we have in here. Cebu's here. We have the people from Swaziland. We have the different nations that are represented here as we come into this relationship with God through the child descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So Abraham is promised, the second shock Abraham's given is that he will be the father of nations and that this covenant, this promise that Abraham's going to be the father of many nations is going to be this eternal, everlasting covenant that God will not back out of. And so God adds some words to these promises he's given to Abraham thus far And he's given Abraham some promises before, but here there's this emphasis on this promise I'm giving you will never fail and it will never come to an end. I will make with you an everlasting covenant for you and to your offspring after you, and I will will give you this land, this land of Canaan, to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so not only, Abram, are are we going to expand this promise that I've given you, that you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations, but I want you to understand, Abram, that these promises I'm making with you will last. They're not dependent upon you and your children coming into being. They will come into being, and they will be held in perpetuity. They'll be held forever because God is a promise-keeping God. The third shocker, for Abram, is that God assigns to him an awkward sign. This may have been a shocker to Abram as well. And the idea is that though the, 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 the promises that God are making to Abraham and the offspring are eternal promises, and the possession will be an eternal possession, God now is revealing to Abram that to him and his offspring, they must keep in covenant with this God who has made these internal promises. And God says, okay, there's going to be this relationship, this covenant that I am making to you. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent upon me. But there is going to be this mark, this sign of your participation in the covenant, and it's going to be a special sign. It's going to be a special mark upon you and upon the children, the sons who come after you, And God explains what that mark will be. He says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the sign of the covenant 
between me and you. The actual covenant is that spiritual promise made from God to Abraham. The actual covenant is dependent upon God and his promise-keeping faithfulness and, and this relationship that God has chosen to have with Abraham and his descendants after him. But the sign of that covenant, the mark of that covenant, will then be placed upon Abraham and all his sons after him. And they are to keep that covenant. And the one thing we want to kind of understand about this covenant is this covenant does not negate or diminish the need for faith. Right? Abraham, through this whole series, has been depicted as this father of us, this man of faith. Now, he's also a man of failings, as we've seen. Right? He's got a share of failings, but he is, even in those failings, this man of faith, and this mark, this sign of the covenant, doesn't negate faith. In fact, it begins in faith, and it points those who receive this mark, it points them to faith. So, so circumcision follows after faith. The Apostle Paul makes a big deal about this in, uh, in Romans chapter 4. But I, I want you to see how this chapter begins. chapter begins with God showing up to Abraham after 13 years. And he shows up to Abraham and he says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then we get this detail that, that, <coughs> that Abram falls down in front of the Lord in worship. And that this is actually before Abram receives the mark of the covenant, this circumcision, before Abram receives any sort of mark, Abraham's already, through the book of Genesis already, he's been depicted as a man of faith all along. So Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? Genesis 17, verse 1. <coughs> Sorry. Walk before me, Abraham. It's, it's this idea, the same kind of idea that we speak about in the New Testament when we talk about walking in the Spirit. It's actually walking in front of God, walking in the presence of God, walking with God's face shining upon us. And as we walk by faith in that way, God, that, that's actually a justifying faith, that we're actually seeing our lives as under the rule of God, seeing our lives as under the direction of God, and this active faith that continually walks in faith under and in the presence of God. And so Abraham's been depicted, and so circumcision is this sign, it's this marker, it's this, it's this indicator of this, of this faith that Abraham already possesses. And that's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4, is that, that Abraham's the father in the faith, not only of those who receive the mark, but be those who have not received the mark. Because Abraham had this faith before he ever received the mark. Okay? So it begins in faith, and this mark pointed the, the sons of Abraham to faith. It pointed them to faith. What I mean is, although Abraham has received this mark, this sign of his faith after he's come to faith, all of his children, all the sons who come after him, receive the mark of circumcision on the eighth day. They, they receive this as before they are able to begin to walk in faith before God that they might be blameless. And this mark, this sign, was to point them to this faith of their father Abraham. It was to be an ongoing 
reminder to them, and it wasn't given to them on the basis of anything that they had done. In effect, that way, it was a mark of grace. It was a mark of God separating a people for himself. And, and, and as, a, as an infant, there was nothing you could do even to receive it or reject it. But it was to be a mark, a sign to you, pointing that it was necessary for you to come into the same covenantal faithfulness relationship with God that Father Abraham had. It was a sign not only to the, the sons who would be born and emerge as offspring of Abraham, but it was a sign for any who would come into Abraham's household. We already know from chapter 14 that Abraham had quite a substantial household of men. Remember when Lot was taken captive and Abraham got 318 of the men of his household together? So this isn't like, uh, this isn't like you know, my family where it's me and my wife and my three kids. Abraham is the manager of an, an, an enormous estate. He's a, he's a proto-nation. Like he's, 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 he's in the process of becoming a major player. That's what chapter 14 was about. All right, chapter 14, where all these nations around Abraham getting in this big fight. And at this point, Abraham's still kind of a household, and they forget about him. They just kind of let him be. But then they take Lot, and they run off with him, and, and Abraham gathers together the men of his household, and they chase him down, right? <clears throat> so that was 15 years ago, according to the story. So who knows how much Abram's family has expanded, his household has expanded since then. And the idea here was that it wasn't just the physical born of Abram who'd be given and, and marked under this sign, but anyone who would come into Abram's family, Anyone who would come into and under that household would be, excuse me, would be part of this covenant. In that way, that, that, that principle that these promises given to Abraham would make him a father of many nations were already being seen even in his own household, as he would have had uh, Egyptian slaves and Ammonite you know, servants in his household. They already would have been receiving this mark, pointing them to the faith of Abraham's God. The third thing that this mark, this sign, was to reveal to them was, oh, I thought I had a thing under here. I forgot to write it. The third, <laughs> the third thing was that the surprising part of this would be that they could be cut off from. So they were included in on the eighth day, but if they did not personally keep covenant with the Lord, if they did not pass this on to their children, entire nations and people groups would be cut off from this covenant with the Lord, which is actually what happens to these nations that, for example, descend from Ishmael. They are cut off. They do not keep covenant with God. They are broken off. The fourth thing about this is that this is the weird thing about this sign. So circumcision, I don't really want to get into a detailed explanation of what it is. If you don't know, ask your parents at home. But it was a private sign connecting you to the community. So in one sense, circumcision was a, a national sign to all the people of Abram would receive this sign together, but it was a sign that you, nobody else would see. It was a very private sign. Generally speaking, only the man and perhaps his spouse would be the only ones to ever see this sign. 
And it's a weird sign then, isn't it? If this were a sign given to the children of Abraham so they'd be marked off from the other nations, it's a weird sign to give. They could have, like, pierced their ear or something to be like, yo, I'm a child of Abraham, see? Well, no one's going around saying, yo, I'm a child of Abraham, see? You weren't, you weren't doing that. And why? And I believe the reason why this is, why, why, why this sign was given, I believe there's two reasons that we're going to look into. First reason, though, is that it is a private, personal sign. If the point of circumcision was to point the children of Israel to the spiritual reality, if it was a sign that marked a spiritual reality, then it seems to me that there would be a reason as to why the sign that is given is such a private, personal sign. Because, to be honest, it wasn't private or personal enough. The point of circumcision was to speak to each of those children of Abraham that circumcision is not enough. They need circumcision to go deeper into them, even into the heart. And so that's what Moses picks up on, for example, in Genesis chapter 10. Moses picks up on this by saying, what happened here? I will read it. Moses picks up on this by saying, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth and all that is in them. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says the same thing. God will come and he will circumcise your heart that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and with all your strength. Jeremiah, the prophet, calls out to the children of Israel and says, yeah, circumcision, fine, but you need to circumcise your heart. You need to cut off those, those, that, 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 that sin and unbelief that is separating you from God. Circumcision alone does not cut deep enough. It's not private and personal enough God gave the sign to point them to individual and personal faith. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, 28. The Apostle Paul says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, true Jew, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter his praise is not from man, but from God. And so that was part of this point of this marker to the sons of Israel, that, that this was to, to be a private and personal, it was collective in that it was given to the whole nations that would come from Abraham, but it was personal and private to point them to the individual faith that they would need, that circumcision of heart. And finally, about this sign that's given to Abraham and his offspring... It was, placed, um, it was placed upon the male sexual organ. Now, that's what circumcision is. It is a removal of the skin at the tip of the male sexual organ. Very strange, eh? Why would God do this? Notice that it's not given to the women, the, the daughters of Abram. It's only given to the sons of Abram. Why is that? 
John MacArthur, in one of his commentaries, he gives one explanation. I think it's about as good as I've ever heard. But he speaks. What is the point of the circumcision? What is the point of, of, of why that part of the body? Well, that part of the body is connected to, obviously, reproduction. What is, what is, what is the, the basis, what, what is the whole reason that we see in the book of Genesis as to why God is making these covenant promises with these people groups? Well, way back in Genesis 3, before, before, long before Abraham, long before these people that we're talking about here, way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God promised to them, and, and through cursing the serpent, God makes a promise to humanity that there will be an offspring who will come, who will redeem and deliver the world. And part of, not only part of, the point of God making these covenants with these children of Adam is to prepare us through the ages and through the generations for this son, this seed, who will come to deliver and redeem the world. Abraham, in chapter 16, has just been called out because he's tried to, he's tried to use his own wisdom in reproducing in, 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 in creating this son for himself. And what God is doing, I, I, what, what MacArthur suggests, and what I believe is probably correct, is what God is doing here, and why this sign is given to the sons of Abraham, is to remind them that their procreation and that their reproduction in this covenant is for a purpose. Their, 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 their act of procreation, the act of reproduction, is going to be the, for the purpose of, of pointing them to the Son, the Savior who is to come. And once the Son, the Savior, comes, it's, the sign is no longer necessary because the Son has come. The Son has appeared, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born a son of Abraham. Jesus was born under that law. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, but he was the last. He was the one to whom circumcision pointed. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that particular covenant sign. And in fact, all of us who are united to Christ by faith are sons and daughters of this covenant, included in him who bore the sign for us. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you were circumcised. So he's talking to, he's talking to the church. He's talking to men and women who have not received the circumcision of the flesh. But he says to us, the church, in Jesus, we, you also, were circumcised <coughs> with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The idea here is that for men and for women, for slave or for free, for Jew or for Gentile, all who have been united with Christ through our baptism, which is the sign of our faith, all who've been united with Christ through our baptism have received our inheritance of this promise given to Abraham. We've re we are the circumcision, it says, in, I think, in 2 Peter. We, we are the circumcision who have been included into Christ. That's why now that Christ has come, 
Faith alone is the instrument reuniting us to his covenant. It's why Abram is the father of all nations. It's why of all those who come to him by faith. It's it's why circumcision is no longer necessary because the anticipated faith, that which it pointed to, has come, has been fulfilled. And that is why Paul says, in Christ, circumcision or non-circumcision means nothing because it has been fulfilled. So that's what circumcision was to point them to. But that would have been a shocking thing for Abraham to hear at 99 years old. Right? And his son Ishmael at 13 years old and all the men of his household, you're given this awkward sign. The fourth shock. <coughs> his wife, 90-year-old Sarah, will have a son. This would have been shocking to Abram. In fact, this is the other thing that makes him fall on his face, this time in laughter. The fourth, the, the thir- the fourth shocking thing that God says is that his wife Sarah will bear a son. She, it actually says about Sarah, she will become nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So, so God, for the first time in this whole story of dealing with Abraham, makes it explicit. Sarah, Sarah is the one through whom these nations will come. Kings will come through Sarah. And Abram falls on his face, face, ugh, face and laughs, and he tries to suggest something more reasonable. He says, Oh Lord, we're gonna look, he says, Oh Lord, cannot Ishmael stand in front of you? Sarah, in the next chapter, Sarah has the same response, by the way. I mean, she's 90 years old. It says in the next chapter. Uh, three angels come, or possibly two angels in the Lord come, visit with Abram. They say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Tents, uh, just so you know, tents are not thick fabric. You can, you can hear, right? Remind our youth on that on the next camping trip. Um, so, so he says, she's in the tent next, she's in the tent, and the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And Sarah and Abram were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's 90 years old. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh? Now, Abram also laughed, right? Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. I mean, the whole thing about this is they end up na- what they end up naming the kid. They end up naming him Isaac, meaning laughter. Meaning every time they hold this son, I love it every time I think of Genesis where they hold their kids and they're like, the kids mean something. So Ishmael they're holding going, God hears, God hears. And Isaac they're holding going, laughter. And after he's born, Sarah does laugh again. Sarah does laugh again and she laughs when she holds her baby in her arms and she says, with God's help I've gotten a son and she laughs. Right? And it's amazing, the story of this barren woman for 90 years praying, perhaps, that she'd have, giving up hope that she would have this son. 
And at 90, God answers her prayer. The fifth shocker is actually, I think, one of the shocking things in this whole passage. The fifth shocker is that Abraham, when he hears that Sarah will be given him a son, Abraham, Abraham's invested 13 years in, in this boy, in Ishmael. And Abraham says, Lord, you don't, you don't need to give me a son through Sarah, or through Sarah. You don't need to do this. Let, let Ishmael live in front of you. And, and here is the fifth shocker. God says to Abram, Isaac is the son of the promise. Abram said to God that Ishmael may live before you. And God said, no, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, God hears, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. And so God clarifies that these promises that are given to pass down to look for who is the seed who's going to come to ultimately deliver, it's not going to be through Ishmael, through whom Abraham tried to conceive through natural means, God's promise will be through Isaac, this son who God is going to give to them through supernatural, miraculous means. It's not through the children. It's not going to be through the works of the flesh through whom the son will come. It is going to be by the power of the spirit, God's mirac- the God who can speak something from nothing. God is going to give this miraculous son through Sarah, and he is the one through whom the promises will come. Now, Abraham is praying for his son Ishmael. Abraham saying, God, take Ishmael. Let him live before you. And God says, listen, Abram, I've heard your prayer. I hear you. I will bless Ishmael. He will be a, 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 he'll be multiplied greatly. He will be very fruitful. And I will bless him. And he will, 12 princes will come from him. And I will make him into a great nation. But he is not going to be the son of the promise. You must wait upon my miracle. And that is where we get back to this idea, right back at the beginning of the passage, where God revealed himself to Abraham as El Shaddai. Where God says, I, here I am, I am the Lord Almighty El Shaddai. Now, a lot of scholars have tried to understand what that means. Most scholars think it has something to do with, I am the all-powerful, sufficient life giver. Try to unpack that one. Because <laughs> when it's used in scripture, it often has to do with God's ability to create life where there was none. And it has to do with God's power in doing so. And so many Jewish commentators just say it just means God is the sufficient one. God is the one who can do it. That's what El Shaddai means. But so Abraham's saying, no, this, this, this promise I'm making, it's not going to come through your works of the flesh. It's going to come through my power and my promise. So Abraham has just had his worldview exploded through this interaction with God. What does this mean? And, and he does, and Abraham does. In God's faithfulness, he goes and he circumcises all the men of his household. Ishmael first, because, because that was what he was told. He was told to, to do this as his own covenant, keeping to, to, uh, to arrange his whole household in obedience to this promise. 
But now he's going to wait. He's going to wait on the son who's about to come. Just have a couple implications, applications for us. What is Genesis 17 telling us? That was a lot to get through to get to here, but we have to get through that to get to here. The first one is, that, I, that I, this is my own personal implication. You might have gotten some other ones out of what we just looked at, but here's two that I came up with. First is just this. Remember that you walk with El Shaddai. The same God who revealed himself to Abram, the same God who said, I'm the all-sufficient one, the same God who said, I can bring life out of nothing, is the God who we still walk with today. And one of the things I see here in this passage is this 13 years of silence. This 13 years where I think from what I see later in the passage where he says, let Ishmael stand before you, 13 years where Abram has settled in trying, in trying to think that maybe this is God's will for his life. Right, 13 years where, where Abram is not expecting to hear from God in this way. And 13 years where Abram's just going through that day-to-day life of being a father, of raising a kid, of praying over them, of, 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 of thinking this is going to be my heir when God actually has even more for him than he could ever have asked or imagined. And just this, first implication is, sometimes we will go through seasons in our life. We will go through seasons in our life where we just feel that we're just going through the motions and settling on this life that God has given us. And, and, and some of us, in those moments, we, we stop truly believing that El Shaddai can show up and do something miraculous. When he does, we're often like, we often like are, are bowled over on our face on the ground going, oh my goodness, God, I had forgotten that you could do that. And so part of, part of what I think is the shock here of what bowls Abram over is <clears throat> he's had 13 years of, of just living his life. We still serve and walk with a powerful, almighty, all-sufficient God of wonders, El Shaddai. Second implication that I get from this chapter is that there's a powerful, yet not absolute, connection concerning the faith of parents and their children. That in this passage, Genesis 17, most of the church throughout church history (coughs) has reflected on this passage and seen, appropriately, that there's a connection between the faith of the father and the faith that the children are expected to keep. That there's a, a powerful connection there between the family faith and that of the kids. And, and that there is a reality in which that God has called you, if you're a Christian here today, and if you are in a marriage relationship, and if God gives you kids, that God actually calls you to put the faith, to put your faith, your walk with God in front of your children. That there's a power in you keeping covenant with God and that there's a natural um, connection to the faith that your children will have. In the New Testament, we are called, particularly as fathers, to not provoke our children to anger, but to raise up our children in the nurture and instruction, the nourishment and instruction of the Lord. And, and that God actually sets apart families to do this. And so it, it is Mother's Day today, and so 
you know, it is an appropriate day to stop. And the, fo- the passage obviously focuses on Abraham as a father, and, 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 and there is obviously, uh, I think even studies show that the faith of a father really plays its part through the family and through the kids. But, like, this is a great day to recognize the faith that God has given to us as families and to pray that we might be faithful in passing that faith on to our kids with the expectation that there will be a natural connection there. That, and sometimes we, um, who are more Baptistic, sometimes we could learn a little bit more from uh, maybe some of our Presbyterian friends. Because they at least have a category for these Christian kids where they're not the pagan world. They, they're not yet faithful followers of Jesus, but they have a category that sometimes we don't, and that is sometimes confusing for us. And I know in, in my family and sometimes in our church, we, get a, we don't know what to do with those kids. We, we want to teach the gospel to them. We, we want them to come to the same faith that we have, but also sometimes we become hesitant of truly instructing them in the faith with the expectation that they will come and be part of keeping these covenant. And so I want to encourage you parents, and I need to encourage myself, do not give up on catechizing, on instructing, on spiritually nourishing your kids in the faith, even if you are unsure yet of whether they have personally embraced the faith or not. What we are called to do as parents is not to provoke our kids to anger, but to bring up our kids in the nurture and instruction and admonition of the Lord. So that's one thing I would like to pray for you who are here today on this Mother's Day, is that parents, we would teach the children the faith. Secondly, and this is to parents, instruct, oh sorry, give your children over to God by praying for them. That's why I say there's a, there's a um, powerful connection, but it's not absolute. Abram in this passage prays for Ishmael, his son, and God actually says, no, he will not be the one. Isaac is the one to whom I will make my everlasting covenant. But God then says, I hear you, and I will deal well with Ishmael, and I will bless him and multiply, and I will have nations come from him as well. And so, give your children over to God by praying for them. There's a powerful connection between the faith and the parent and their children, but it is not absolute. And so so bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then place them into God's hands, his sovereign care. I do not know if the kids will be in covenant with God or not. That's not our job as parents. We can't force anyone into it, but we can pray for them and we can bring them in front of the Lord and say, Lord, that my kids might live in front of you. And then I would speak to the youth and the kids here. Your parents are seeking to model the Christian life for you. Your parents, they're praying for you. Your parents are praying that you might be in covenant with this holy God, that you might keep covenant and not break the faith of your family. But kids, you don't become a Christian by growing up in a Christian family. You must keep covenant yourself. You must do what Abraham is instructed to do. Walk before me and be holy. You, there, there, there's a great thing that happens for you being raised in a Christian home. But that does not necessarily save you. It does not save you. That alone does not. 
You must come just as Abraham did. Hear the gospel. Hear the good news of what God has done that you might be reconciled to him. Understand that there is nothing you can do. It's not your devotion to the church. It's not how many services you've attended. It's not how good or nice a person you are. It's only by the work of Christ. It's only by coming in to faith in him, faith relationship, that we become a son or daughter of Abraham. It's only through uniting to Jesus Christ through faith as professed in our baptism that we become that child of Abraham. And so today, if you're here and you have parents who've prayed for you, I pray that you yourself would be a child of Abraham by faith. There was a, somebody was once asked recently, he had been serving in the military and he had been known as a womanizer, drunkard, just, you know, party life. And, and his life suddenly changed. And his friends asked him, what, what was it that caused you to become a Christian? What was it that caused this change? And he went into his knapsack and he pulled out a letter from his mom and he said, this sentence this sentence is what changed my life. And he opened up the letter to his friend, and it said, Son, we are praying for you. I'd like to pray for all the families here. Um, you know, on Mother's Day, we usually have the mom stand up. I would like us all to stand up. We're going to all stand up. I'd like to pray for you all, because we are the family of God as well. And so we're going to pray for the moms. I'm going to pray for the dads. And we're a Chinese church, so if you're new to Chinese church, you've got to know this. We have a lot of aunties and uncles around. So when you hear people, if you're not new, used to the Chinese church, and you hear people talking about aunties and uncles, and you might be like, how is that person their auntie? It, we're part of the family of God here. And so there's a lot of aunties and uncles and a lot of kids. And uh, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray... Father, thank you for the faith that you gave Abram before you gave him any mark of that faith. I thank you for the mark that you gave him to mark apart his family from the nations of the earth. I thank you that you fulfilled all of your promises to him in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I thank you, God, that you have called us out of the nations of the earth to be a new family. I thank you, God, that you are building uh, faith into families in this church. Thank you for men and women who you've called to be your sons and daughters. I thank you, God, for uh, those who uh, join to one another in marriage. I thank you, God, when you give the blessing of children. Lord, we pray that you might find us as a church and they as parents faithful in bringing their children up, not provoking them to anger, but bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I pray, God, that we present these young ones to you. Lord, we, we, we lift them up, these young ones, to you. We say, Lord, that our children might live in front of you. And I pray, God, that they would be chosen and, and in, in covenant as Isaac was. Lord, I pray that our kids here might walk in faith and be blameless before you. I thank you, God, for aunties and uncles and cousins in the church here. I pray, God, that we would all do whatever we can in order to help and aid these families in raising these kids in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for each of the Sunday school teachers. 
Father, we thank you for each of the youth leaders. Lord, we thank you for each of all who work with our kids here at the church. And I, I pray, God, that this generation might rise up and be blameless in front of you by the work of Jesus Christ. I pray that they themselves may come to faith and have a true encounter with you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.